0: We are beginning a journey. You guys ready to go on a journey? We're going to go on a journey through a book of the, of the New Testament. We're beginning a journey in the book of Ephesians. And I just have to say that the Lord birthed the desire in my heart probably a decade ago to teach Scripture, to teach verse by verse through books of the New Testament. And it was never something that I did growing up. I began preaching when I was 18, and the first message I preached, I memorized the entire message uh, many of you don't know this about me. Uh, some of you do. But uh, I have grown up with the speech impediment. Uh, I have a stutter. I stuttered from the time I was five. Uh, if my mom was here, she could attest to this. People I work with can attest to this, re- to this reality. Uh, but, but, but by God's grace, he called me to preach. So I kind of like my thorn in the flesh. But my first message I preached because of my stutter, uh, I memorized the entire thing. I did not want to read anything. So I just wanted to recite everything. And so and it was just on a topic. And there's nothing uh, wrong, right or wrong. It's not right or wrong to do topical or verse by verse. But that's what I grew up hearing was typically topical messages. And, and, and in my early to mid-20s, God placed on my heart a desire to teach verse by verse. To begin to be exposed to that type of teaching. And it really fed my soul to, to dig into the depth of God's word. And, um, and then I come to Living Word. And I had a few years of preaching prior to that. And I come to Living Word and nine months into Living Word, one year into Living Word, Pastor Renee uh, asked me, uh, no, he did not ask me. He told me in front of the entire congregation on the Sunday that I was going to teach through the book of Revelation with him on Wednesday nights. So if you've been a part of Living Word, you know that we go verse by verse through books of the Bible on Wednesday nights. And so I found out with the rest of the congregation that I was going to do that. And it has been the joy of my life the last five years to get my feet wet in doing that. And we've been through Revelation twice, we've been through the gospel we're going through the Gospel of John, we've been through the Gospel of Mark, we've been through first and second Timothy, Titus, and so we've gone through several books and and I begin to to I, I will not say that I am a great expositor of Scripture, but I will say that I have been able to, by the by the work of God, have the opportunity to to practice doing that on Wednesday nights, and so we're going to begin this journey. It is, has been a, de- a desire of my heart, and so this is the direction that we're going. And, uh, and so Ephesians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written around AD 60 or 62, but, but after this letter was written, you fast forward 40 years into the, into the letter to the birth of the church, 40 years into the future, and the church at Ephesus gets a second letter. It's a second letter. It's not Ephesians uh, 2. It's the book of Revelation. And this is the second letter that the church at Ephesus gets. And this one is not from the Apostle Paul. This one is from who? The Lord of the church, Jesus. through through John, but it's from Jesus Christ himself. And this is what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2, 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him... Who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who's that? These words are of Jesus. Only he holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. How would you like to hear that from the Lord of the church, from Jesus Christ? How would we like to hear that as Living Word Church? This is not just a hypothetical church. There was a church in Ephesus that this letter was written to, that this message was being sent to. This is like us getting a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ himself and it's being read to us and he says, I have this against you. may May that not ever be said of our church, that the Lord has anything against us. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Forty years. Forty years into the future. Forty years. Now, he commends them and he says, he says you know how to stand up against false doctrine and, and, you, and you know how to test those who claim to be apostles, but they're not. You know what's true. You know what's right. But he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so, what the Lord of the church, Jesus, is saying, the picture of the lampstand is the picture of influence. And so Jesus is saying, is saying, I will remove your influence and your ability to influence as a church and impact others for the gospel unless you return to your first love. If you do not return to your first love, I will remove the light in your church. And you know the, the history of the church of Ephesus is that Ephesus was in what we know now as modern day Turkey. And there is no Christian influence in Ephesus right now. It is 99.9% Muslim now. And the lampstand for the gospel was removed from the church in Ephesus and in that, in, in that region. That is the true reality of what happened. And so with that backdrop, wouldn't you think that the first letter... And let's just think logically. This is the warning 40 years after the first letter from the Apostle Paul. This is the warning. But there had to have been something very significant that Paul was trying to teach this church that would have helped them to remember 40 years down the road. And so this really amplifies for me the importance of the book of Ephesians. And so what is the main purpose of this letter? What is the main purpose? The main purpose of this letter... It's very clear, and, and I want to illustrate the main purpose of Ephesians through this story. There's a, there's a, a, a millionaire a woman that was uh, alive during the 1800s. She died in 1916. Her name was Hetty Green, Hetty Green, and she was known as the Witch of Wall Street, or she was known as the Great American Miser. And so when she died in 1916, she had the equivalent, she left the equivalent of $100 million dollars. Right, she left a hundred million dollars in her estate. Excuse me, it was the equivalent of two billion today in today's currency. This was the wealthiest woman in the world at that time, and it is it is uh, said of her. Uh, history tells us that she would eat cold oatmeal. Who of you like? How many of you like cold oatmeal here? Y- y'all are like Hetty Green back there, <laughs> like cold oatmeal. But she didn't like cold oatmeal. O- Oatmeal, just to like cold oatmeal, she ate cold oatmeal because she didn't want to pay for the cost of heating the water. It's true. This is, this is true. She also, her son, hurt his leg. And it was a serious leg injury. And she was so determined, $100 million estate, so determined, wealthiest woman in the world, so determined to find a free clinic that it took her so long to get her son to get help that they had to amputate his leg. It's a true story. Hetty Green, wealthy, $2 billion worth of wealth. And then they say that her death was brought on faster in her life because of a seizure that she had uh, in the middle of arguing about which was better, skim milk or whole milk. And she was arguing the cause for skim milk because skim milk was cheaper. And so she had a seizure because she was so angry, and it, it was the pathway that led to her death. So what's the picture that we're getting here? I, I, I believe that this illustrates for us the purpose of the book of Ephesians. Is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are like Hetty Green. We have billions and billions and billions of dollars of riches, spiritual riches that we have in Christ. And some of us here, we don't know what those riches are. We are in Christ and we've become new creations in Christ and we do not know the reality of who we are in Christ. And for some of you here, almost all of your Christian life, maybe, you have believed that to be a Christian means I have to do this and I have to do that. And you come and you hear messages about all the things you have to do. i got to do, i got to do, i got to do, i got to do. And you have a lack of understanding about who you are. And this is what Paul gets at in Ephesians, the first Three chapters of the book are are primarily, not primarily, but it it is the only purpose of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is to describe for us the riches we have in Christ Jesus. And in the second half of the book, starting in chapter 4, verses 1, Paul says this, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the call with which you've been called. And for the rest, from chapter 4, verse 1, through, chapter two, through the end of chapter 6, it's, it's all about practical Christian living. It'll be a, it, 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 he talks about marriage. He talks about raising kids. He talks about how you live as a believer in a crazy world. He talks about spiritual warfare and prayer. And it's all very practical. But he doesn't flip the order. You know, a lot of us are used to this idea, well, you need to talk about everything that you need to do. But what happens is, is whenever you believe in your Christian life, that you're doing is what makes you a Christian. then then you miss the whole point. Your doing is not what makes you a Christian just like your doing is not not what makes you an unbeliever. Unbelievers do not, uh, their sin doesn't make them a sinner. They're a sinner and that's why they sin. The same is true as believers in Jesus Christ. We live to honor God, not because we're trying to please Him. We live to honor God because it's who we are. Because it's who we are. Do you believe that? And understanding right Right believing produces right living. And when we believe correctly about who God is, when we believe correctly about who we are, it will produce right living in our lives. In the book of Ephesians, the word riches is used five times. The word grace is used 14 times. The word glory is used eight times. Fullness, filled up, fills is used six But the one phrase that is used the most throughout the entire book is the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. It is used 22 times in six chapters. The phrase, in Christ, in Him, through Him. It's the picture that that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we are in Christ. And this is where the series is going to start. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the next several weeks and we're going to study through the first three chapters of this book. And it's a series called, In Christ. And we're going to look at the spiritual blessings that we have as believers that we find only in Jesus Christ. And and look, this is some beautiful language that the apostle paul uses we're going through to the heights of the gospel we're going into the heavenlies to discover what who god is and what he's done on on our behalf and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and 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 that's why throughout the first three chapters there's a couple of beautiful prayers and, and 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 words of praise that paul gives it's like he breaks out in spontaneous praise in the middle of his letter because he's talking about how wonderful God is and what he's done for us and, and what that looks like in our life as Christians. So this is the journey we're going on. You guys ready? We're going to go on this journey of, of finding out who we are in Christ. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is the, these are the six verses we're going to cover in week 1 of In Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus. ...and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ... ...who has blessed us in Christ with... ...say with me... ...every spiritual blessing. Where do the spiritual blessings come from? In Christ. In Christ. That's where these spiritual blessings come from. In the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world... That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. Lots of stuff right here in six verses. We're going to key in on one of the spiritual blessings here. And each week for the next nine weeks. We're going to look at nine spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Before we transition to Chapter Four, but we we I read a couple of things here. Let's look back at the text. Let's put the text back up. Just wanna I wanna uh, uh, I want to address this before we move on to the to the spiritual blessing we're gonna look at. It says here, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he say it with me chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in. Before him. In love, he predestined us. Next, next verse there. Verse five and six. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. So I want to talk about being chosen and being predestined. And so this is, this reality is, uh, is a biblical doctrine. You know, it's not just in Ephesians that we see the word chosen and we see the word predestination. You see it in the book of Romans and and you see it really strongly in the Gospel of John. And we're in the Gospel of John on Wednesdays. And it is a difficult doctrine, biblical doctrine, to understand what does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean that we are predestined? And so what it means is, is that we were chosen. What it means is, is that we were predestined. And I don't have much more help for you than that. That's what it means. And for some of you, you think, well, I don't like that. I chose God. Yeah, you did. But he chose you first. That's what the Bible says. And so then, look, trust me, there are tons of questions that come up. And I've wrestled with all the questions. And maybe some of you, you don't wrestle with the questions. Because when you get to this section, you just kind of skip over the section. You're like, I don't want to mess with that. I don't get that. That's a little weird. Uh, But that's okay. I want to try to give you a, a, a little help. So here's my, here's, here's my little bit of help for you. The reality that God chose us, because it's biblical, we just read it. I didn't make that up. It's in the Bible. And the reality that he predestined us before the foundation of the world, that reality, does not change our responsibility to respond to the gospel. No one, hear me, no one, no human being in all of history ends up in hell because God predestined them to go to hell. They end up in hell because they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they refuse to repent of their sins. That's the reality. So how does it work out that God predestines and we choose? I have no idea. All I know is that it is beautiful. What a beautiful picture. That before I was ever born, before you were ever born, God chose you. God predestined you. He set, It says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. God loved me. Who loves anybody before they're born except a parent, right? God loves us before we could ever prove ourselves to him. And the main point of predestination, the main point of of the reality that he's chosen us is to make it abundantly clear that we do not save ourselves. Salvation is not of us. We are not the ones who who alone choose God and it's, it's up to us because if that's the reality, then we don't need Christ. And we don't need the gospel, then we can, by works, save ourselves. They both have to be true at the same time. So this is the way I like to describe the doctrine of predestination and man's free will. They are parallel truths. They are twin truths that run side by side. And I heard this preacher uh, just a couple of days ago. He described it like this. People always ask him, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and man's free will? He says, you don't reconcile them because you have no need to reconcile friends. They complement each other. Just when you get to the point where you think, hey, I got it all figured out. I saved myself. God says, oh, well, wait a minute. Let me take you to the word of God here and show you. I chose you before you ever knew me. You think you're hot stuff, right? No. I loved you before you ever loved me. It's beautiful. All right. You guys got it? <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, look, that's all I have for you. Look, and this is what it does. It causes us to bow down in awe and worship. At a God who is infinitely greater than anything we can ever imagine. And that's the reality. God is bigger than us. You know, I, I know some people, they don't like that doctrine. Because they like to try to put God in a box in a way that we can figure him out. It is a divine mystery. How can, that, how can they both be true? I don't know, but I'm not worried about figuring it out. I'm just going to worship God and thank him for his love he set upon me before I was born. And I'm going to preach the gospel with all of my heart. Because the Bible says that whosoever will can be saved. And that's my responsibility. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. We got that done. All right. We'll, We'll come back at it when we're going through the book of Romans. All right. So let's go back to the text. We're going to look at the purpose of Ephesians here. Blessed be, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So what is the first spiritual blessing we're going to look at in week 1? He says in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So the first spiritual blessing we're going to look at is the reality that those that are in Christ are adopted into the family of God. We've been adopted We didn't belong to Christ. We were not his child before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. We were not his child. You know, a lot of people like to say that everybody is the child of God. You know, that's really not biblical. The Bible doesn't really say that. The Bible says that everyone is created in the image of God and in his likeness. But scripture makes it abundantly clear. And we're going to look at some verses here that that help us to see that those that are not in Christ aren't believers. They are not his children. He loves them. And he desires them to be adopted into his family, but they belong to someone else. Let's look at what Scripture says about those who are not adopted into the family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks. In which you once walked. And it it says here, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in verse 1. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of... Sons of God? Children of God? No, no, no. You're a son of sin, of disobedience. You're following. It says here the picture that before Christ, you're following Satan. And you're a son of disobedience. That's, that's harsh, right? That's, that's strong. Ephesians 2, 3, you co- you, it, it continues on. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, children of wrath. Children of God? No, by nature, my precious little Lincoln that was born, that's my child. I love him. But he's got to become a Christian. He has to respond to God's call. But by nature, Scripture tells us we are born with a sinful nature. We're children of wrath. What does that mean, children of wrath? It means that unless we receive from God the provision of his son Jesus and his absorbing of The wrath that we deserve, unless we receive that by faith, we are children of wrath that are destined for the wrath of God in the end on that day of judgment. That's what it means to be a child of wrath. Again, Ephesians 5, 6 tells us a similar thing that we read in in 2, 2. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is having a conversation with some Pharisees that are mad at Jesus because he forgave the woman caught in the act of adultery. And so he begins this conversation with them. And they tell Jesus, who are you to talk to us? We're, our, our father is Abraham. We belong to Abraham. And what does Jesus tell them in John 8, 44? I mean, this is crazy, right? If I said this, you guys might kick me out of the church. Let's put John 8, 44 up. You are of your father, The devil. These are unbelievers. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're of the father, your father, the devil. How's that for witnessing one-on-one? Right? You talk to your co-worker at work and you tell him, look, I want to tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. Right now, you are under the ownership of your father, the devil. Jesus did it. Just saying. I'm not, you know, I want you to be like Jesus. But it's true. It's true. It's, look, you are not a part of God's family until you're adopted. You've got to be adopted. There's only one means of adoption. That's faith in Jesus Christ. You're of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You know, I was reading a book in preparation for this. It's a book called Biblical Doctrine. It's written by Richard Mayhew, this is what he says about the power of adoption, says to be adopted into God's family means that God legally places, listen, regenerated and justified sinners into his family so that they become sons and daughters of God and thus enjoy all the rights and privileges of one who is a member of God's eternal family. So here's the picture. At one point, we are sons of disobedience. We are sinners. We are, we are of our father, the devil. We are the enemies of the the cross, as the New Testament tells us. And God draws us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And somebody who does not deserve to be a part of God's family, somebody that does not deserve the rights and the privileges to be called a son or a daughter of God by faith in Jesus Christ, God takes that person and he justifies them. When they place their faith in Jesus and he gives that person, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, he gives them his righteousness. He imputes that righteousness to them on account of Jesus and, and, and because of their faith. And then he adopts them into his family and he says, now you are my son, you are my daughter and all the rights and the privileges of being a part of my family belong to you. You know, many of you know we have adopted uh, Reagan. Reagan's the one that acts Like a fool down here during worship, putting stickers all up her legs, and we're trying our best. We don't have the perfect pastoral family down there right now. We're working on it. We will. Actually, we're not working on it. (laughs) We're just going to be who we are. But um, because Lincoln's going to be walking soon, probably it's going to be a mess. But um, we adopted Reagan, and we got Reagan at three days old. And Reagan came from a a rough background, and she didn't know it because she was a baby. And I remember the phone call we got. We were, I remember that. Where, where I was at, I just woke up from a, from a nap. I'd come back from a mission trip and uh, woke up from a nap. And we get a call and the social worker says, we have a three-day-old baby or two-day-old baby. Are you interested? Yes. I mean, how, we thought for a second, how can we say no? Yes, we'll take her. And so they told us all kinds of things about this baby, about Reagan. When they brought her, they said she had dwarfism. They said all these things about who she was. And We're like, we like small people. We'll, 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 take, we'll take a baby. That's great. That's great. And so from three days old, she was a part of our family. And instantly, instantly, she was grafted into the Buffkin family. It took three years, however, for her to get our name. A three-year process. And, and uh, June the... What's the adoption date? June fourteenth. Yeah, her birthday is July twenty-first. I do know that. But in June of last year, we went into that courtroom, and legally she became a Buffkin, Reagan Joy Buffkin. And listen, look, Amen, Amen. What a blessing! And she doesn't know any better. We let we let her know she's she's adopted. Though we tell her we we are she's going to grow up knowing her story that she was adopted, that she was chosen. They made that phone call, and they said, do you want her? I said, we choose her. We chose her. And you know what's interesting about this? Just to go back to the predestination thing. You know, before we ever got married, Estelle and I, God placed a desire in my heart to adopt. And God placed a desire in her heart to adopt. Long before Reagan was ever in her mother's womb, we set our love upon her. And God, down the road, 12 10, 11, 12 years down the road, God brought her to us. And she's a part of our family. And that's what it means. She didn't, she didn't, she didn't deserve to have any of the rights and the privileges of being a Buffkin. Because there are some privileges of being a Buffkin. Do you want to know what some of the privileges are? <laughs> Is you get to have dance parties at the Buffkin's house. Right? Right? That, that's a privilege. That's not just a right. That's a privilege. You, it, it's fun to be a part of the Buffkin family. You, you get to move every three years. It's a great blessing. <laughs> it's wonderful we are moving again for those of you who don't know we are we have sold our house we're going to be moving hopefully in three weeks uh but yeah, it's a great privilege to move all the time but she Reagan didn't deserve that and it's the same thing we don't deserve any of the rights and privileges that we get by being adopted into god's family but that is one of the spiritual blessings of being found in christ that we are adopted and what's amazing is, is that in Peter, it says that when we are a part of God's family, it says we are partakers of the divine nature. Reagan will never have my DNA. But when you become a Christian, you're adopted to his family, you take on the very nature of the eternal son of God. Amen? That's powerful. That's powerful. We got to hurry up here. You guys, you guys ready? Okay. Those who have been born again are then placed into God's family. Those who have been justified, made righteous before the Father are then adopted and made to be a child of God. So this is what we want to look at. We want to look at what are the privileges of being adopted into God's family. It's better than just dance parties at the Buffkins' house. There's, there's other priv- there's spiritual privileges of being adopted into God's family. The first one is this. We are no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves. We're sons. Galatians 4, 4-7 through says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the, un, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are no longer, as being adopted into God's family, we are no longer under the ownership of our former evil taskmaster. We are no longer slaves to his desires for our lives. We are free from the bondage to sin. You guys celebrate that with me? We are free from the bondage to sin. We no longer have to be bound to sin and disobedience. We can walk free because we're a, we're a child of God. We're no longer a child of wrath. Or a son of disobedience or a daughter of disobedience. We are a child of God and we do not have to walk according to the, the, to the old desires of our flesh. We have a new nature in Christ. We're no, we are no longer slaves. We have a new name. We are grafted into the family. Galatians 4.8 says this, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. We 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 used to be enslaved. You guys think back to the times that you were enslaved to lustful passions, to to greed, to to worry, to fear, to anxiety, sins of all kinds. You you were enslaved, but now that you're in Christ, you're no longer bound. You're free. You're free. You don't have to walk according to the impulses of your flesh anymore if you're in Christ. What does the Bible say? I am crucified with Christ. Never it's not I that lives but it's Christ who lives in me. That old man is dead and only one new man rises from the dead in Christ with a new nature. That's what it means to be a child of God. We are brand new in Christ. We're brand new in Christ. And if you remember back, I, I quoted John 8, where Jesus told the, 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 the Pharisees that they were sons of the devil. But let's talk about that story. There was a woman caught in the act of adultery. You know what's interesting is, is that these men somehow caught her in the act. I've always wondered about that. We have no way of knowing what, what happened. I, speculation, maybe maybe one of them was the one that was with her. Who knows? But how did they find out? They were looking. And ultimately, they were trying to trap Jesus. That was the point. They're trying to trap them under the law of the Jews. And the law said that if someone was caught in, in, in adultery, the law said to stone them. And so they threw this woman at his feet, this woman that was enslaved to sin. This woman that was enslaved to sin. And they say, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to stone her? The law says to do this. And you know the story. He kneels down and he writes in the dirt. And we all speculate again. What was Jesus writing? Well, we, really, we really don't know. But whatever he wrote, one by one, they dropped their rock. He says, you without sin cast the first stone. And they dropped their rocks. And he, Jesus kneels down. He's looking at the woman. And he says, and you... Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. She was enslaved to sin. She was in bondage to sin. And the Lord forgave her and brought her in. And John eight thirty one through 36 says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These are the same Pharisees. He's talk, this is after, listen, this is after Jesus restores the woman caught in the act of adultery. Listen to what he tells these Pharisees. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They believe that this woman was enslaved. They, they're not enslaved. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's what he was demonstrating to these men. This woman is I'm, I'm making her free indeed, and it's through me that you will be free. You don't recognize that you're the ones that are actually enslaved because you don't recognize you have a problem. You don't recognize that you're in sin. And later on in that discussion, Jesus tells these same Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And so we were all once like those Pharisees, enslaved to many different things. But one of the great privileges of, of adoption is that we, we, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We have a new name. We are free. We are... New creations in Christ. And First John three one tells us this: See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen. Amen. That's the first privilege: is that we are no longer slaves to sin, slaves to anything, but we belong to our Father God through Jesus Christ. Second, second privilege of adoption into God's family is that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can cry out, Abba, Father, Romans 8, 14 through 15 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, those that are born again, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What does that term Abba mean? We know what Father means, right? It's a formal way in which we we talk to our dads or our kids talk to us it's a formal term but that word Abba what does that word Abba mean? The word Abba was an informal Aramaic word for father. It represents the most endearing tenderness and intimacy between a father and a child. The word Abba how many of you have interesting names that your kids called you when you're growing up as a dad or you called your dad you know like daddy is one of them right that's not kind of crazy Reagan sometimes calls me dad she'll call me dad But one of the ones that really stuck out to me is um, Clyde Noel's sons call him Pop. And I just wish that I could have taken that. (laughs) I just love that term Pop. And his grandkids call him Papa C. And it is so precious. And, And when I was reading this about the word Abba, that is the first thing I thought of in my studies was Pop and Papa C. It is just a term of intimacy. And it's endearing. And this is what? God says that we can call our Father. Do you remember at the altar call time? I talked about the holy mountain and the holy God and we don't have access and it's only through Jesus Christ that God, that same God that is holy in Exodus 19, is holy now. And through faith in Christ, we can call him Abba, Pop, right? Abba, Father. Father, we can, we can use a term of endearment towards our God. That's the intimacy that we have. We have the privilege through adoption. We can cry out, Abba, Father. You know, other than this section in Ephesians and in Galatians 4 and Romans 8, there's only one other place in the New Testament where the word Abba is used. Only one other place. It's in John, excuse me, it's in Mark 14 and Jesus used it. Let's read this. And they went to the place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, Jesus said, sit here while I pray. And he took... To understand that we who were alienated from God, who were enemies of the cross, who were enslaved to sin, spiritual orphans with no rights or privileges, can now, because of his great love for us, because of the power of the gospel, can cry out to God in the same way that Jesus did. Think of that. The son of God, the innocent son of God, cried out to his father, God, as Abba. And we get to do the same thing. What's even more stunning than that. The other thought that exceeds that is the reality that Jesus' cry in Mark 14, listen, was ignored. So that ours would be heard. That's powerful. The Lord didn't respond. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He said, Father, he said, Abba, remove the cup. If it's possible, remove the cup. Father, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that we could have the privilege of adoption through his sacrifice. So that we could cry out to him, Abba. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's a privilege of adoption. And a part of that privilege of be able to cry out, Abba, Father, is that we get to come to that father and to pray. Luke 11 says this, What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If then you, who are evil fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew 7, 11 says this. If you then, same, same picture here in, in Matthew. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We get to come before our Abba Father... And we get to cry out and say, God, here is my life. Here is my situation. Here is what I'm going through. That is the privilege of adoption. The spiritual blessing of being found in Christ. We are His children. We belong to Him. He is our Abba. He's not an angry God up in heaven that is waiting to hit you over the head when you make a mistake. He is a loving Father that longs to bless you with good things. Do you believe that? He longs to bless you with good things. We have the privilege... And the blessing to be able to come into our Father's presence and bring our requests to him. Because he loves us and desires to bless us. You need to hear that. Some of you need to hear that this morning. God, our Father, your Abba Father, desires to bless you today. Not only do we have access to the privilege of our Father's love as demonstrated through his lavish blessings. We also have access to another form of the Father's love. This is our third privilege we have access to the Father's loving discipline. Loving discipline. That word discipline. You like the word discipline? My kids don't. I want to read a verse in Hebrews 12. This is the this is privilege of adoption. Welcome to the family. You get to get spanked by your Abba Father. Do what it says. That's kind of my version of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. If you're a son, you get disciplined by the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son he receives. You know, I talk to my kids a lot about their problems and their issues. And, and I believe that their, their translation of this verse... Um, they don't like it, right? And, you know, sometimes you go to, to discipline your kids. You tell them, you know, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. I don't think they really believe that. They, they really think that this is the worst thing that has ever happened. They believe that, oh, this is so terrible. And that's how we view discipline, right? No one likes to be disciplined by their earthly father or parents, much less God, right? I don't want to be disciplined by God. Being disciplined by the Lord is painful. But let's continue on in Hebrews 12, and let's listen to this. continues on the same thought. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all who are sons have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what what does Paul say here in Hebrews? If you're not disciplined by God, then you don't belong to him. He only disciplines those that he loves. So when you get disciplined by the Lord... It's a, proof, it's a proof of your salvation. Like, hey, yes, celebrate when you get disciplined by the Lord. It's a, it's, it's a revelation. Yes, I belong to Him. Now, a lot of us don't celebrate it. But that's a part of being in God's family. That He loves us enough. How many of you have been disciplined by God? But disciplined a few times by the Lord is painful. It's painful. That's what it says here. It says, besides, verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. The discipline is for our spiritual growth. Listen to this, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When God disciplines us, corrects us, convicts us, tells us of an area in our life that we need to adjust and change, it's because he loves us. And when, when we submit to his discipline, it may be painful right now to walk away from things that are not of God. It may be painful to walk away from friends you should not hang out with. It may be painful to 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 choose forgiveness instead of bitterness. And it may be difficult and hard. But whenever you come under the discipline of the Lord. And you're trained by it. It will yield a fruit of righteousness. Do you believe that? That is a privilege of being in the family of God. that That he cares enough about us. As his sons and daughters. To help us grow spiritually. Amen. The last privilege we're going to look at as we close. The last privilege of adoption. Is that we enjoy unity. With our brothers and sisters. We enjoy unity with our brothers and sisters. When Reagan got adopted, she immediately got a brother and a sister. And now she has another brother. And it is a great privilege to have unity. that she, just, she bears the Buffkin name just like my other three kids bear the Buffkin name. And that's the picture of the church. The church is not intended to be a social club where we gather from week to week. The church is designed to be a gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ who are unified under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that unity motivates them to worship together, to serve together, to evangelize together, and to care for one another with tenderness and compassion, with tenderness and compassion. You know, so that's the unity that we share. You know, when we were in Albania, when we were in Albania, it's our last night, and we're fixing to leave the next morning at 2 in the morning, and so we have one last night with Carlos and the rest of the team, and we're giving thanks to each other and Sharing what we mean to each other. And Carlos got a chance to speak. And before he spoke, I didn't know everything that he was going to say. and it, it, it was really a beautiful picture of what it means that we are really, truly brothers and sisters in Christ. With Carlos Valderas who is how many thousands of miles to Albania? 6,000 miles across the Atlantic in Albania, in Eastern Europe. We have a brother in Christ, and I want you to hear what he has to say. Because we don't want to be in Albania. We're going to El Salvador because we want to be longer in
1: Albania. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I want to thank you because if this has been a church who has been with us all this time, uh, that, church has been, that church has been you. And uh, even though uh, we don't see each other, Uh, 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 often Uh, your love always we can feel your love always all the way here and and we're thankful for your support because thanks to your support we can pay buildings thanks to your offering I can pay the, the children's office thanks to your offerings we have a children's church in Albania not just in Institute but in Albania because there is not another children's church I haven't heard any other ministry who has a children's church except the church and Institute and, and that's because you send money to do that so you're making you're making a huge change in this country thanks to you we can pay the rent for casale thanks to you we could invest two hundred dollars a month into the children's ministry in Institute thanks to you. I have been able to spend time to develop the, 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 uh, the discipleship along with town and Milian, And now there is a process for the adults to get discipleship from receiving Christ all the way to become part of a planting Church team. Thanks to you, we have been able to translate uh, all the books along with Migena, uh, Anissa's work, and, and some other seven more translators from the local church and institute who had helped me to translate all those books and we have been editing those and the kids are growing. Gloria is leading, and Andrew is leading, Joseph is growing. All of them they've been through cool Castillo. And, and and things are happening. Like Pastor Clyde said, things are happening and, and, and I'm so excited to see the fruit myself of, of that investment. Because now I can go back to El Salvador and say, hey it works so help me because it works we need to be there for more years but more than God you have believed in us I don't have a word to thank you because I'm El Salvadorian and for you to support me it's a great it's a big thing
0: Man. Isn't that beautiful? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. He's an adopted child of God all the way in, in, in Albania, from El Salvador, sent to Albania. And what a great unity and a blessing it is for us. to you know, Look, he was thanking you. He was thanking you. It was your offerings that we were able to take. You know that make it for missions that we did? We brought him a check of $4,300. $4,400. I think it ended up being 4500 what a blessing. It's going to go to be able to help him with a new vehicle. What a, what a, what a, what a, what a blessing. That is the unity of the body of Christ. You know what's interesting? I, I wanted to communicate this from Carlos about that offering. They made a decision. Carlos and his wife, Reina made a decision to help one of the, the, their, their brothers they worked in, in ministry with in Albania to send them on a honeymoon. These are local Albanians who could not afford to go on a honeymoon. And Carlos took... Money that he could not afford to give away, and it was around twelve hundred dollars, and gave it to them so they could go on a honeymoon, which they would have never been able to experience. And he said, "Lord, we're trusting you." And within less than thirty days or so, around that time, was when we started to make it for missions, and we raised the money, and we sent the offering, and God blessed them over and abundant above what they had given. That's but he's crying his eyes out as, he, as he's telling that story. That was your money. That was your faithfulness. And that's the privilege of being a part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to care for one another. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, brothers, sisters, if we are struggling, if we're caught in a transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens that is the privilege of being in the family of God we get to bear one another's burdens we get to help restore one another when we're overcome in transgressions and sins and when we're burdened with frustration and anxiety you know my kids I believe that they think Galatians 6 says that if your sister does something wrong make sure she is caught that's what they think Galatians 6 means that's not what it means We're there to care for each other's burdens. What a great privilege we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. All around the world, the common bond believers have is the power of the gospel that has transformed us. In in conclusion, Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3 says this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, for where? In unity. For there, in unity, the Lord has commanded the blessing. And whenever we recognize that we have the privilege of adoption as sons, and we are sons and daughters, together we are unified as a church, that's where the blessing is found. Amen? Why don't you stand to your feet with me? Thank you, Lord. We just thank you, God, for the reality, the spiritual blessing that we see in in Ephesians chapter 1, that we are adopted into the family of God, that you predestined us to adoption as sons. God, we are privileged, Lord, that we are no longer slaves. We are no longer bound by sin, but we are new creations in Christ with a new nature. We have been grafted into your family, and we have the privilege of crying, Abba, Father, And now we can draw near. We can cry, Abba, Father, and draw near to you in worship and prayer. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being unified together as a body of Christ, to worship you together, to grow together. We thank you for our adoption, that we belong to you. What I want us to do is I just want us to sing this this chorus, this song, the last one that we sung. And I want us in unity, as, as adopted, all of those of us that are believers here this morning, as adopted brothers and sisters in Christ, I want us to sing this song as we leave this morning.
1: I draw near, I draw near to you. draw near you draw
0: near to you. As sons and daughters of God, we can draw near to our Abba Father. And we can worship you. I thank you for this first spiritual blessing that we studied this morning. Thank you, Lord, that I hope, Lord, that it would be a, a reminder of us of who we are in Christ. What a great privilege we have to be called your sons, and that's what we are. We thank you for it. Lord, bless your people here this morning. We pray all these things, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.